Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We certainly won't forget this year in a hurry. For cycling fans, 2020 was the year that nearly didn't happen. Then most of the familiar races came in one glorious rush, with some cliffhanger finishes just to make up for the delay. Good news for the people behind The Roadbook, who nearly didn't have enough to fill the third edition of their cycling almanac. We talked to one of them, broadcaster and ruler columnist Ned Bolting. And as Rouleur celebrates its 100th edition, we talk to one of the people who was there right at the beginning, Rafa founder and original Rouleur publisher Simon Mottram. This is Rouleur Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. In its three short years of existence, the roadbook has become an indispensable guide to the year in professional bike racing, all the statistics, reports and results you could possibly need. This year was looking tricky, after pro cycling pretty much ground to a halt in the spring. But then things picked up again, in spectacular fashion. So, the roadbook 2020, edited again by Ned Bolting, is here, or very nearly here, although a little thinner than in previous years. Yes, it is. It's just short of 700 pages, whereas uh, the first two years of its existence, it was kind of clo- it was actually close to a thousand um, in previous years. But I mean, you know, let's not um, let's not do it down. 700 pages or thereabouts is a is, <laughs> is nonetheless a pretty substantial tome. It's nice to um, to receive it from the printers at the beginning of the week and um, actually hold it, hold you know, pick it up. And um, yeah, it still weighs a it still weighs a fair amount. It must have seemed at one point this year as if there wasn't going to be a roadbook twenty twenty because there wasn't really going to be any racing to talk about. But in the end, we got some. Yeah, it was it was pretty delicate <laughs> because if you consider, so I was actually commentating for ITV on essentially the last race before the world went dark, you know, um, and that was the slightly curtailed Paris Nice, which you know, which really should have been abandoned much earlier than it was. I don't know if you, it's, it's weird to think back actually in, you know, to when it all collapsed and, and, and that sense of deep unease about ASO pushing Paris-Nice through, you know, they didn't quite get it over the line into Nice and, and they cancelled the final stage. But, you know, the world was coming to an end. That's what it felt like. Well, especially because so much of the racing at that point was planned for Italy, which yeah. was going through an absolutely terrible crisis at the time. It's absolutely right. You know, I mean, the first race that got disrupted was, of course, the UAE Tour, which um, is an RCS race. Um, so they're the, the, the race organisers who own the Giro d'Italia and Terreno Adriatico and the, the Lombardia and Milan-San Remo, etc. 
you know, all the staff, uh, they're all based in Milan, primarily, you know, in Lombardy. They were worst affected of all of the Italian regions at the beginning. It was also the UAE Team Emirates team itself, which has, you remember, Fernando Gaviria got COVID. A lot of them, um, soigneurs and mechanics, because they have risen from the ashes of, a, of an Italian team, are Italian. And so the whole story at the beginning was very much bound up with the fate of Italy at that point. And um, I was actually due pretty soon after the UAE uh, tour kind of ground to a halt. And, and uh, um, I was due to go out to Italy to commentate on, on Strade Bianchi. And then, in fact, Milan San Remo. And, and they left it incredibly late to call those races off. Uh, and Tirreno Adriatico went at the same time. But Paris-Nice remained in the calendar. But going back to your original point, you know, did, did you think the book wouldn't happen? Well, you know, there were a certain number of races that had already happened, you know, not just the uh, Southern Hemisphere races. You know, there was uh, Het Newsblad um, was raced both for the men and the women, I think I'm right in saying. And there were one or two stage races in the Spanish uh, Peninsula as well, which which happened. So there, 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 there'd been a bit, but to be honest, not enough to justify um, you know, producing a lavish hardback book and asking people to put their hands in their pockets um, to to support it. You know, so as as a business, if you like, it was pretty existential for us. We're we're just a startup cottage industry, really, and um, we have a great passion for what we do. But it felt it felt pretty bleak, like we were being snuffed out before we'd got going. You know, but we did get some uh, racing, and in fact, it all sort of came at once in the end, didn't it? We had Grand Tours. Uh, and classics happening at the same time. Um, as a, as a fan, we saw that I sort of didn't know where to look. What what was it like trying to commentate on it or, or or to act as a broadcaster during that time? Well, to be honest, I loved it. I mean, I loved every day of racing. I couldn't believe the, the first you know the first World Tour race back um, was Strade Bianchi, which had been that that one that had been cancelled. And I actually went out to Italy. Um, I had slight misgivings about travelling for all the good reasons you know but that was the gig they wanted me there on site and I stayed in Italy for a week and I, I commentated on that and uh, Milano Torino which was a bunch of print this year and and then Milan San Remo and after that it just went ratatatat you know straight to the Dauphiné straight to the tour and then the Giro and all the classics and not once did my kind of interest in the season and my passion for it um, wane or relent. I just thought it was scintillating from start to finish. And when it eventually stopped at the end of the Vuelta um, in Madrid, I was kind of bereft and heartbroken. I thought, well, now we've just got plain old reality to deal with. Whereas, you know, I thought road racing had provided us with an absolutely fabulous uh, diversion to take us away from the pandemic for those few months because the racing actually was really good and there were some there were some great upsets and surprises weren't there yeah I mean the, there were and there weren't I remember having a discussion when it became apparent that the UCI were going to try and push through this um this compressed calendar with all these kind of concurrent anomalous uh you know contradictions like the idea it didn't happen in the end but the idea of Paris-Roubaix happening during the Vuelta you know I remember having a discussion with Lionel Burney, our, our friend and colleague from the cycling podcast and the, the writer. And Lionel was very concerned that uh, the calendar, the results would somehow be debased in 2020, that it would, the calendar would produce a bunch of, in inverted commas, unworthy winners, you know, winners by default because uh, the big hitters, the real players weren't there to contest. 
And actually, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that happened at all. I think that by and large, uh, it produced the you know across the board, racing produced some great champions who will be remembered for as long as we remember road racing because hopefully 2020 will be a, a complete anomaly and people will be talking about it in 100 years and, and they'll remember that Theo Gegenhardt won the Giro and they'll remember that Tadej Pogacar won the Tour de France in the most unimaginably dramatic fashion and they'll remember that Mathieu van der Poel and Wout van Aert dueled for the Tour of Flanders, you know. And it was exceptional. I guess it's a really difficult question, but do you think, you know, the, the sort of the surprises that we did have um, were as a result of the bizarre circumstances of this year? Or do you think it was just time for a change of generation in road racing anyway? Yeah, I, I think that the two things came at once. I think it was a confluence of circumstances. I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, if you think back to 2019, I remember when I wrote my one of the great pleasures of writing the you know editing the road book is I get to write a huge review of the season at the beginning called the editor's introduction and in in 2019 I kind of I, I, I hooked the entire review of 2019 around the concept of there being a paradigm shift in racing um, exactly as you say the old guard were beginning to make way for this young generation of riders and I think Covid uh, just accelerated that uh, that inevitable um, process that was already in place before the pandemic. So I think that's what we've seen, yeah. There's a school of thought, and I'm probably a member of it, that says that actually that sort of calendar, which starts with the spring classics, then moves on to the grand tours, then the world, then the autumn classics, is an essential part of cycling. If you don't do it in that order, it doesn't work. But that's another thing that's been sort of challenged this year, hasn't it? Uh, yes, I guess so. I mean, it would. It was, you know, one of the one of the aspects of the. I think the Vuelta is an interesting one. I thought the Vuelta was particularly potent this year. Um, I thought it looked, you know, beautiful actually. And let's not let's not underestimate how important you preaching to the converted here where Rouleau is all about the aesthetics. But let's not forget how important the look of a race is. Uh, that's part of the appeal of this sport, isn't it? And I thought, I thought the, the late autumn sunshine in northern Spain uh, just brought that landscape to life in an unimaginably vivid way. And, you know, there might be an argument, there might well be an argument for pushing the Vuelta back in the calendar, possibly even to after the World Championships. Because the Vuelta has moved before, hasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the Vuelta used to be the first of the Grand Tours. You know, I think that, I think that merits some consideration because... You know, one of the problems that the Vuelta has is that riders do often use it as a, a training camp for the World Championships. And occasionally, once they've ticked off their, their objectives in the Vuelta, they, they climb off and they don't ride all the way to Madrid because they're going to then, you know, taper down and get ready for the Worlds. And I, I just wonder whether there isn't a case for pushing it back in the calendar and having this kind of wintry look to it. And uh, I also think, incidentally, that they need to, this is a separate issue, that, that it's time to abandon the bunch sprint in Madrid, you know, and do something different, uh, a, a little bit like more like what the Giro does and give it a, a GC finale. That would be a good in, innovation. But I think going back to, you know, wider reorganisation of the calendar, yeah, you could possibly have races shifting around a bit. I mean, I think a lot of people liked Strade Bianchi in the heat of midsummer. I thought that kind of worked. But uh, I, for one, will be, broadly speaking, incredibly relieved in because uh, I'm, I'm in I'm in lockstep with you on this. I'll be incredibly relieved to return to the, the old normal, you know, of of that of that calendar drifting through the months and the seasons in that familiar way. 
because as interesting as 2020 was, I don't want another one. Do you? No. Um, but already next year, uh, yeah, if things go ahead um, uh, as planned, but already the organisers are talking about not having fans on the climbs at the Tour of Flanders. So it's going to be another year that certainly starts off a bit oddly, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I mean not having fans. I mean, the, the, the Flanders Classics organisation were very, very um, strict with the way that they administered their particular races in the sense that they didn't even, this is quite a co- problem, I commentated on a lot of those actually, and um, they didn't actually release the, the, the route until sometimes the morning of the race for general consumption, which obviously made a life quite difficult for commentators. And they did that specifically to, to urge people to stay away. And by and large, those, yeah, those races were pretty empty. But I, I don't think it mattered greatly. I think that road racing, as we predicted, I think when I spoke to you actually in last time on the podcast, I think it survives as a crowdless spectacle to an incredible extent. It survives largely intact. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't need a crowd to generate drama, whereas a lot of other sports enclosed in stadiums do. And they're, they're kind of like, I think Danny Baker, the, 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 the football pundit, used the word when he was talking about football. He said, what we're seeing at the moment is a hologram of the game you know and I thought it was a spot on that that phrase whereas with road racing it just looked like road racing to be honest and I did so it doesn't greatly bother me that um a few of the race organizers are already erring on the side of caution I don't think that's a problem in theory do you know what your first race is next year I do in theory I I think the first race I'll be attending in person probably my first commentary will be the UAE tour um, so that's uh, that's just been penciled in, actually. So um, yeah, some sometime in February, isn't it? Towards the end of February. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Vaccine. The vaccine's on its way in. All is all is good. Let's hope so. The Roadbook 2020 is available. Price fifty pounds from the Ruler online store. While you're there, you can check out the best range of cycling and cycling-related goods from all over the world, all under one roof. Perfect for Christmas presents, including, of course, a subscription to the magazine, now available in English and Italian editions. Subscribe now and you'll get issue 100 free, but be quick. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by LACA, bicycle insurance powered by the community. LACA's collective cover is made especially for cyclists for life on and off your bike. They've transformed traditional insurance to provide customers with a fairer, collective-driven approach to cycle insurance. Say goodbye to fixed upfront premiums. Instead, your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month. Your maximum monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. And they have some big news. LACA will be running its first ever crowdfunding campaign and offering equity for the pack. Cyclists have helped LACA bring a much better model of insurance to the masses. That's why they want to invite you to join the ride. They're pleased to be able to give Ruler listeners the opportunity to own a part of LACA. You can invest in the future of LACA from as little as £10 and become a huge part of their collective. To register and to find out more about LACA's crowdfunding campaign, head to LACA.co. Remember, when investing, your capital is at risk. This announcement is approved by Cedars. (laughs) 
Issue 100 of Rouleur is on its way very soon with a hundred memorable cycling moments. Marcel Kittel's Guide to Sprinting features on Chloe Digert and Tim Cohn's fabulous peloton portraits and much more. The magazine's come a long way in its 14-year life, but then cycling has changed a lot since 2006 as well. A lot of current readers may not remember that the magazine was first launched by Rafa, itself at the time a very new and small-scale cycling brand. Rafa founder and chief executive Simon Mottram remembers the early days. Yes, yeah, so the idea for Ruler, well, it was, it was Guy Andrews' idea. He was the first editor and he set it up with us. But the idea didn't really come about until after we'd launched Rafa. And I'd met Guy when I was first putting a business plan together for Rafa. And uh, I'd been recommended to go and see him by some friends of mine at CycleFit who'd said, you know, you must be mad to try and do this. Go and see our friend Guy. He he works in PR and cycling and he knows everything there is to know about the industry and he can give you some advice. So I went to see Guy, who at the time was in a little lockup in Battersea, and I showed him my plan or talked through my plan for Rafa. He gave me sort of various bits of advice, including don't do it, which was the sort of the common advice at the time. But we, but we stayed friends and, and in contact. And when I started the company, clearly Guy, Guy very quickly became one of the most important press contacts I had because he'd taken over as founding editor of Road Cycling UK, which was you know, one of the early websites. And so because he was down the road and because I knew him and, and RCUK became quite important for Rafa as a place to get our products, I started seeing him fairly regularly. So at least once a season or you know, twice, two, three times a year, we'd sit down and I'd take him through the products and He'd write about them and he'd, you know, we'd have a good old chat. And the conversations always ended up with us drinking coffee or something stronger and just moaning about the state of cycling media and particularly magazines. And Guy had quite a long experience in magazines by that point. And I was an enthusiastic consumer of magazines. And, you know, it always came down to the same terrible things you know they, they were I won't use names because it's not fair and they're friends of mine but most cycling magazines at the time were just incredibly simplistic and you know they're printed on really cheap paper and they were sort of dispatched with almost you know no effort on creativity or storytelling or brilliant photography the whole thing was a little bit dumbed down as was befitting of the cycling industry at the time you know this is 2004 2005 you know there hadn't been that whole boom hadn't taken off yet. So we used to end up just moaning about the state of magazines. And it, after about the third or fourth time of moaning about the state of magazines, and Guy always seemed to have lots of ideas on it, I said, well, listen, if you care about it that much, because I do too, why don't we do it together? You know, we will publish it, but it can be your thing. Rafa will come in as partner with you. Um, and, you know, we'll take the financial risk. We've got loads of customers already who I think would love this or would love to see something better. So why don't we do it together? And that's that's where the idea came from. But the, the idea of what it should be was very much Guy Andrews' idea and his vision. And I just went along for the ride, really. So effectively, Rafa were kind of financing it, were paying for it, and Guy was doing the production. That's right. I had plenty of other things to do. <laughs> you know, There were only, I think, about three or four people in Rafa at the time. So we were doing a lot with not very much. And I'm not a magazine publisher, so you know, obviously we could we wanted to let Guy just get on and run with it and bring in the people he wanted to bring in to do it. And we effectively paid for it. The first 
couple of issues, particularly the first issue, um, was very much, you know, we were involved in it and there's a lot of Rafa material in there, a lot of our photography. There were a couple of the articles we worked on together. And in fact, the overall look and feel of Ruler, our graphic designer put together, although I think the masthead guy had done separately. So it was, it was a sort of collaborative approach, but it all came out of the head of Guy, really. I've actually got here um, a copy of the first edition, the first ever ruler, And it's incredibly thin, isn't it? It's like a pamphlet. You can't forget that. <laughs> it was, I think it was about 50 pages or something, wasn't it? Yes, and it had virtually no adver- advertising because we just called in a couple of ads from friends of ours. As I say, the content was a lot of Rafa stuff. The cover was you know, done by a, a friend of mine, Benningham, who did a lot of work for Rafa through the years. And and so it made sense for him to do some work for the magazine and he did the cover, which is that amazing chain link. But yes, you're right. I mean, it was it was very thin and, and it was eight or nine pounds a copy. So it was kind of, it was basically cocking a snook at the rest of the industry and saying, no, you can actually, people will pay more for something that's higher quality, even if it's only 40 or 50 pages long. And I'm very disappointed to recently discover that my copy has got a pink uh, ruler masthead on the front page. Um, So it's probably worth a few bob on eBay, but apparently there are ones with silver ruler on the front, which are worth a lot more. There are, yeah. We did a special foiled cover version, which I think we did 100 or 200 copies. And I'm fortunate to have a a couple of copies of that, yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was, it's hard to imagine now when we've, you know, we've been wallowing in a huge amount of cycling media for the last 15 years. It's hard to imagine what a surprise it was that this magazine came along because there was really nothing like it. There's nothing that made people go, wow, how exciting. Yeah. Most things you consume because you just, you're obsessed like me and you just wanted to know all the details and you put up with the fact that they looked ugly. Whereas here was something which was, it was just, it was intelligent and the whole thing was positioned to a more sort of intelligent audience, I suppose. I remember going along to what I think was the first Rafa pop-up at Selfridges um, and thinking, no one's going to pay 60 or 70 quid for a jersey, um, although, I, although I did because I bought one. Um, and then thinking, oh, no one's going to pay nine quid for a cycling magazine. Um, but since then, both of those seem relatively unremarkable. In fact, you know, 70 quid for a jersey and nine quid for a magazine seems almost a bargain these days. <laughs> it's sort of mid-market, isn't it? Yeah, the Selfridges thing was 2005. That was, we were a year in, perhaps a little bit ahead of our time to go into Selfridges, <laughs> but it was, it was a nice thing to do. And I remember us having enormous visuals of Eddie Merckx and Bernardino and Fausto Coppi sort of eight feet tall visuals on the first floor of Selfridges, which was quite surprising to the average shopper walking in. I'm <laughs> just wanting to buy a T-shirt. Yeah, they were very much the sort of Rafa and early Rouleur look of, of, you know, people in black and white suffering, weren't they? Yeah, it was, it was about the human beings. And, and I think lots of magazines until Rouleur came along had been about the, the technology. And even if they were talking about racing, it was, a tech, it was technical coverage. Whereas I certainly always felt that the appeal of the sport was that it was a human sport. It was about the human endeavor and the human stories that made it completely compelling. And I think, you know, although Guy is a complete technology nut who loves bikes more than and knows more about than anybody I know, I think he saw that too. And so the photography that we used in Rouleur and the photographers that he brought in to work with 
yeah, people like Tim Cole and Olaf Unzavet and and Ben Ingham. Yeah, they they were very good at capturing human beings rather than bits of metal. Um, and I think that's part of the appeal. But you, uh, you may not know why we priced it at nine pounds. I mean, now as you say, it now seems like a standard price for a quality cycling magazine. At the time, the most expensive magazine was three pounds. I think maybe for a monthly. We we had a big argument, and I think Guy wanted to keep it somewhere around the five or six pound mark, and I was pushing for ten. And um, we decided to settle on nine because that was the price of the congestion charge at the time, <laughs> which is about the the least sophisticated pricing strategy you can ever imagine. But um, it kind of it amused me that we did it that way, and it worked. It worked, yeah, it worked. And the subscriptions were you know were decent value, and we did four. Did we start with four a year or two a year? We might have started with two in the first year and then got, went to four a year. And there was enough time to consume it. You know, you could sit with it on the, you know, the whole idea was it would sit on the coffee table. It wasn't something you consumed in the smallest room and then threw in the bin. This is something that you treasured and you kept dipping into, which I think now there's a lot more of that. And in fact, there's lots more books as well that you can do the same, have the same relationship with. But at the time, as I say, it was just piles of, of rubbish in the corner and as you say there are lots more people doing very similar things both in clothing and in media to Rafa and Rouleur um, from a few years ago does that annoy you at all that there are so many people doing similar things uh, it doesn't I've learned for it not to annoy me if it annoyed me I'd be a very sort of twisted and angry person because it's happened a hell of a lot and I think it just is it, it comes with the territory it, the being first into a market and establishing a market is a place I'd always rather be. You dictate the the rules of the game, if you like, and and you're always ahead. You're always sort of one step ahead of the competition if you can keep doing that. The price that comes with that, though, is that lots of people will see what you do and they'll probably see you making mistakes because when you're first in, you make a lot of mistakes. And Rafa, we certainly made a lot. And I suspect with Rouleau, we made a lot as well. And people come in as sort of fast followers and they copy you and yeah that can it can be frustrating i've learned as i say to to let it wash over me quite happily you know it's more flattering than it is annoying these days but the only thing that annoys me slightly is when people don't realize that's what they're doing and it sometimes happens and i'm sure it happens with ruler that some of the other quality magazines that come along don't even reference ruler or even know inside you know they haven't rationalized the fact that they are effectively copying somebody else's playbook they think they're doing something original, but um, but they're not. Uh, from all the 100 issues, but uh, in particular from those early issues which uh, Rafa supported, uh, is there a particular favourite article or a favourite cover that, uh, that you remember? Uh, well, the favourite cover by far was the Pantani cover with the sort of distressed photograph of him crossing the line at Piancavallo, I think. And that's, you know, I absolutely love that, partly because I love Pantani, but also just the image captured the fragility of the man. And I just found it so arresting. I've got it in my kitchen framed on my wall. So, you know, I look at that one every day. There were lots of articles. You know, I learned a lot about the sport through the magazine, which is, I suppose, what the objective was. A couple that spring to mind. One, we did an amazing um, article with David Miller quite early on. And David, I knew, but didn't know enough about him and there was a really good article by Guy I think did it himself and Taz Darling who did lots of the photography for us she did the photographs at the time as well and I remember it being stunning absolutely stunning and it was kind of wow that's that's a bike racing hero 
shown properly rather than some sort of, you know, dull interview on a team bus. And then another interview, another article that I absolutely loved was we did a piece about Pegoretti. And I think it was on the cover of one of the early issues, probably a couple of years in. And the cover shows a picture of his original um, workshop, which he moved from a few years later, but it's up in the mountains in the Dolomites. And there were these doves on the window panes um, and it's all sort of very moody. And I remember going there for that interview with, with Guy and with Ben and we turned up and we hard to find this place. It was over the railroad tracks in this misty valley surrounded by snow-capped mountains. And then you heard this, you, I think you heard it before you could see it, you heard this sort of sound of free jazz. <laughs> and then you looked over the railway and there was this amazing old industrial building with the door half ajar and smoke coming out of the door, which was from one of Dario's endless cigarettes. And this sound of jazz, and you walked in and there he was with his blowtorch doing Philip brazing, whatever he was doing. And we spent a couple of days with him, really getting under the skin of, of the man. It was absolutely magical. Um, yeah, an unforgettable experience. Rafa's Simon Mottram. And that's it from this Ruler Conversations. We're back next week with news of a very special edition in the new year. Until then, stay safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 